in saying that, can I ask that you grab your Bibles and stand with me as we read God's Word together? We're reading from Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter together as we get a sense of what we'll be exploring this morning. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thank you, Blair. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that you have revealed to us the beginning and the end. And now as we are trying to make sense of your word from beginning to end, I pray that your spirit would guide us and teach us. Please use me as imperfect a vessel as I am to build up this church. And may we together glorify you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week we took a look at the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible and and what we tried to show was that we are moving from creation to new creation. That's that's how it starts. The the outer two chapters both on the beginning and the end of the Bible we find no sin there. We find no curse there. We find no death there. And the good news for us is though we have lost what we had at the beginning through the sin of Adam and Eve, what we just read about, God has promised to more than give it back to us. And that was the whole point of last week, that not are we uh, just going back to the garden, we're going to go beyond what Adam and Eve had in the garden. God will be there with us he will manifest the fullness of his glory among us Uh, we will be married to him through christ and all of the glory of god will fill the new creation so there will be no more darkness no more death no more crying and all of the former things that is the things of the middle 
between Genesis 3, which we read today, and Revelation 20 will be gone. Today, we want to continue to develop this idea, and we're going to start with taking a look at what we lost and what we might expect the implication of that loss to be. Then we're going to see how the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's the Torah, that was the full Bible at one time, how the Bible, or the Torah, which was the Bible, takes us in an unexpected direction. If you take a look at Genesis chapter 3, just go down near the end of the chapter and take a look at verse 24. We are told, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, he drove out the man. This is harsh. He drove out the man. Where did he drive him out from? He drove him out of paradise. He, he drove him out of the garden. He says, you can't stay here. You cannot have access to the tree of life. You cannot live in this sinless bliss forever and ever as I had promised you. And everything that I have had given to you, everything that I said was to be yours, I'm taking it away. And I warned you, on the day you eat that fruit, you shall surely die. So he drove out the man. Where did he drive him out to? To the east of the Garden of Eden. And so that the man and the woman and all of their descendants would never return, he placed a cherubim, an angel, a violent angel with a sword to guard the tree of life. What we learn there is there's no going back. At least that's what it seems to say at the end of chapter 3. So the Bible then opens with two chapters of, of wonderful glory. Everything is good. Everything is, is excellent. And it's, it's truly paradise. There was one law. The man and the woman broke the law. And so they are exiled from Eden. This is the beginning of a major theme throughout the Bible. This theme is the theme of exile. If you sin, you'll be exiled. What is exile? It's to be driven out. Whatever exile it is, it's to be driven out. It's to be taken away from your homeland. Uh, Eden was to be their home, but they were driven out. They were exiled from Eden, and we are told to the east. There are three great exiles in the Bible, and, and several smaller ones, but there are three great exiles in the Bible. And the first one is right here, east of Eden. Humanity was exiled from paradise, exiled from the tree of life, exiled from perfect communion with God, exiled from all that is good. The second great exile that we learn about, which we're not going to talk about much today, but I want to note it for you, and, and I, I will just give passing reference to it a couple of times, is Babylon. Uh, many thousands of years later, the descendants of Adam and Eve through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is Israel, and Israel's son Judah, they are in pro the promised land, and God gives them a bunch of rules, very similar to Genesis 3. And he says, if you keep these rules, then you can stay in the land. 
and I will provide for you, and I will protect you, and you will live long, healthy, prosperous, fruitful lives. But if you break these laws, then I will drive you out of the land. Sounds familiar, right? And should. We're not going to get much into that today, but just note it, because as we unfold a full biblical theology of the Bible, we want to see the relationship between east of Eden and Babylon. So in 586 B.C., God sent Nebuchadnezzar to exile God's people from Jerusalem and Judah. The third great exile in the Bible is the one that comes at the end of the final judgment. And this too is related to the east of Eden exile and the Babylonian exile. All of them are pointing forward to the ultimate exile, which is hell. As I've already noted, these three exiles are all connected. Let's start with hell. Uh, if, if you don't have the Bible, if you just take Genesis 4 and you bridge straight from the end of Ge Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20, what we would expect is Adam and Eve, because they sinned, they are kicked out of the garden, and as they're exiled to the east of Eden, what is their destination? Is it heaven? No. See, this is where our culture has it totally backward. Oh, I'm a good person. I think I'll go to heaven. I have to do something really bad to disqualify myself. No. Actually, the Bible starts the exact opposite way. The exile of Adam and Eve from the garden, if we just think logically, the logical destination of that exile east of Eden, the goal, the finality of that exile is, in fact, hell. And so if God does nothing to intervene into the destination that Adam and Eve and all of their descendants should expect, then Adam and Eve and all of their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren all the way down through the ages right to ourselves should expect that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we ought to expect for ourselves the permanency of the exile that was started in the garden. And that, as I said, is exactly what the Babylonian exile is also trying to teach us. What happened to Adam and Eve in the garden because of sin happened also to Israel in the promised land because of sin, which will happen to all of us ultimately in hell because of sin. You see, exile is a great an important theme in the Bible because without God's gracious intervention, without the gospel, that is the only destination that we ought to expect from the biblical narrative. It is exactly this, if you sin, then you will be exiled, you'll be driven out. It's exactly this sin-exile paradigm that is set up in Genesis 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, that makes the Torah so stunning. It's what makes the Torah so beautiful. Because as we're going to see, at the end of the Torah, we're a long ways from hell. At the end of the Torah, we don't find ourselves in continued exile, but we find ourselves with Israel receiving a land that God has promised. That's not what we should expect. You see, 
the end of the Torah, Israel is poised on the edge of the promised land, ready to go in and to take this land that God has promised. That's unexpected. That is unexpected grace from the hand of God. Our expectation coming out of Genesis 3 is that Adam's exile leads to the ultimate exile, which is hell. Instead, the Torah goes in a totally different direction, away from exile to a land, a home, a prosperous land, a fruitful land, the promised land. And so we want to explore this a little bit. That's our goal today. What is the promised land? How do we understand it in light of Genesis 3? How do we understand what God is doing in the Torah? If at the end of the first five books of the Bible, we we find ourselves in a new land that is very Edenic or Eden-like, how are we to make sense of that? In order to make sense of that, let me just give you a very brief, a very macro, a very zoomed out, summary of the plot of the Torah. After Adam and Eve are kicked out of the land, or kicked out of Eden, and we see all of these curses that are laid against them, we expect life to be hard, and we know it's going to end in death. That's the last thing that God says to Adam. At the end of all of this hardship, and pain, and suffering, and strife, and toil, in a sin-cursed environment, you will die. First generation of humanity after Adam and Eve, that's exactly what we see. Brother rises up against brother and kills him. That's exactly what we should expect. That's hell on earth. Person number three kills person number four. That's what we should expect for all of human history until the ultimate exile, which is final judgment and the end. So the Torah doesn't start off very well. It doesn't get much better. Wickedness, we're told, from the time of Cain and Abel just gets worse until we get to the time of Noah. And God looks down and he says, I just see wickedness everywhere. That's what we should expect. And so we see the flood, which is God's judgment, and he saves one family. That's unexpected. The fact that he flooded the earth, the fact that he killed most of the people, that's, un- that's not unexpected. The fact that he saved a family, that is unexpected. Why would God save a family? Was Noah any better than the rest? We're told that he was righteous in his generation, but he was still totally depraved like everyone else. It's that God gave him the gift of faith and by grace made him righteous so that we would not perish as a race of creatures. And so he brings Noah's family through the flood, and things continue to go bad until we get to the Tower of Babel, and things are not any better. That's exactly what we should expect. But then God does something unexpected, and he chooses a man by the name of Abram, and he says, I'm going to change the course of human history through you and your family. I'm going to give you unconditional promises and I don't care how wicked you are, I don't care how much you sin against me, the things I'm going to promise to you depend on my grace, my kindness, my mercy, my character, not on your ability to be any better than you are. 
And God passes that promise forward to Abraham's son Isaac, passes it forward to Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. And then God gives Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants a promise. I'm going to give you a land. But I thought we were driven out. I'm going to give you a land, a good land. It's going to be yours. That's unexpected. But then this family goes into slavery because of drought. They find themselves in Egypt after a few generations. Egypt enslaves them. This is not what God had promised, is it? For four centuries, they're enslaved. Finally, they, they cry out to God, and God raises up Moses to deliver them. And, and through the blood of a lamb, God delivers them from slavery and bondage. That should ring in our ears. The blood of a lamb is the means through which God takes a people enslaved and liberates them and says, now I want to give you the inheritance that I promised to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I hope you're, you're hearing some things that are familiar. He liberates these people from slavery. They come to a body of water. They're baptized through the Red Sea. They enter into covenant with God, and then they walk around in the wilderness for a generation. At the end of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God brings them finally to the edge of the promised land. He says, this is what I promised. That's unexpected. Entering the promised land, as I have said, is in many ways the opposite of exile. It's the opposite. It's the undoing. It's the reversal of Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, God drives out the man and his wife. He drives humanity out of the garden to the east. At the end of five books of the Bible, and some thousands of years later, he's bringing his people into a land. Do you see, do you see the contrast there? Do you see the difference? By promising and then delivering on the promise of giving a land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is, in some ways, reversing Adam's exile. Indeed, it is true, the land that God promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then delivers, is described in Edenic or Eden-like terms. It, it sounds like Eden, Fourteen times in the Torah, do you know how God describes this land that he promises to give? I want to give you a land. Oh, well, what kind of land is that? Is it a land that's overrun with vegetation? Is it a land that's overrun with briars and thistles? Is it a land where we're going to have to toil hard until we die? No, says God. It's a land that is flowing with what? with milk and honey. These are, these are good things. These are sweet things. These are Eden-like things. This is a land that is flowing. You just go there and you dip your hand across the honeycomb and you eat the sweetness of the land. Why? Because I want you to know I am just a lavish God who wants to give you the best 
at all times. I just want to read you. I, I, I could read so many different places, but there's one place in Numbers. Just listen as I read a few verses from Numbers chapter 13, verses 23 to 27. Just listen to the way this land is described. The context here is that Moses, as they're in the wilderness, is going to send 12 spies into the land to just see what kind of a land this is. So that's what I want us to gain from this. This is the, the spies go into the land and they report back. Remember, they've been wandering around in the desert. They're eating manna, this coriander seed-like tasteless something that keeps them alive. But it's not tasty. It's not delicious. The spies go into the land, and this is what happens. The spies came to the valley of Eskol, and they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. I just want you to picture this. They come to this valley, and they just cut down one branch, just, just one branch. But that one branch, and, and the whole idea there, the way the story is being told, is it's a small thing. It's just one small sample of the good of the land. But this one small sample, this one branch, which is filled with a cluster of grapes, one man couldn't carry it. And so they have to put it on a pole. And it's so heavy that two of the 12 spies have to carry it. And they're, they're heavy laden with the goodness and the heaviness of the fruit. That's, that's the picture here. So they cut down a branch. There's a single cluster of grapes. They carried it on a pole between two of them because it was so heavy. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. Anybody ever watched Survivor, the show? You know, after, what, four, three weeks, here's a cheeseburger. And what do they do? All the people, all the contestants, they like fall on the ground. They're like weeping. I need the cheeseburger. I want it. I want it so bad. I'll do anything for it. Imagine walking around for years and years in a dusty wilderness eating manna. And then all of a sudden, a cluster of fruit, pomegranates, figs. Like This is meant to make us salivate. This is good land. This is Eden-like fruitfulness it was so fruitful verse 24 that that place was called the valley of Eskol which means cluster they, they just said this is this is good we're going to call this cluster this is where we got the cluster it's a fruitful place because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there at the end of the 40 days the spies returned from their spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of, of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them all, to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land, and they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. They had heard that before. God had said, this is, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. We've been there. We've seen it. It's flowing with milk and honey. Everywhere you go, it's just good things to eat. And look at this. This is its fruit. This is unexpected. Because if you just read Genesis 3, want you to leave this paradise because you've sinned. This is a 
total departure from the expected trajectory of human history, which is only available to the people of God because of the grace of God. This is not what Israel deserved. It's not what any descendant of Adam and Eve deserved. Just contrast what I just read out of Numbers with what God actually does promise sinful humanity. To Adam, because of the curse or because of the sin, in Genesis 3, verse 17, this is what God said. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded it, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns, thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You have to work hard. You don't just go to the Valley of Eskel and trim down a, a, a cluster of grapes and it's so heavy and, and lavish and wonderful that it takes two of you to carry it back. You don't just find figs and pomegranates. You don't go to a land that's just flowing with milk and honey. You sinned. You're, you're driven out. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Until when? Until you give us a better land? No. Until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You're dust. And to dust you will return. You see the contrast? The problem when we read the Bible is we feel somehow that for some reason Israel deserved the promised land. It's just the next part of the journey toward the gospel that we got to get through to get to Jesus. But, it, but if we have eyes to see the the radical departure from the expected trajectory of human history in God giving this land flowing with milk and honey and, and a cluster of grapes and figs and pomegranates to a wayward people, the descendants of Adam and Eve, then we just are astonished at the lavish generosity and mercy of God, the goodness of God. And I hope that you're even now beginning to see echoes, shadows of the gospel. The promised land, you see, why does God give it to them? The promised land is a kind of Eden. There's a part, at the end of the Torah, we're actually shocked to find ourselves in some ways back at the beginning of the Torah, which is a lot like the structure of the whole Bible, isn't it? Remember last week? We find ourselves at the end of the Bible in the new creation, which is better than Eden. Well, it's very similar. At the end of the Torah, we find ourselves on the edge of the promised land, which is a lot like Eden. Both of those are unexpected. But of course, before I, I maybe could close the book and say, okay, so that's good. That's our lesson. The, the Torah is sort of shaped exactly like the Bible. But there is a problem with this. Remember last week what we said is that, that the new creation, the holy city, is better than Eden. Everything that was good about Eden will be there, but it will be even better. That's unfortunately not true about the promised land. See, there's a problem here. The promised land is not as good as Eden. There's still war. There's still sin. 
There's still death. Thus, in many ways, in spite of this short reprieve, Adam's exile continues because the end of the curse is say, you're dust. And to dust you will return. So until you return to dust, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. God, that, that's nice, but it doesn't solve the bigger problem. Careful reading of the Torah then introduces theological hope, but it also, if we're reading carefully, introduces a theological predicament. On the one hand, the promised land isn't the same as Adam's exile, at least as described in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. We don't see the thorns. We don't see the thistles. We don't see the toil. We see a land that's good and bountiful and fruitful flowing with milk and honey. So, so it's not exactly the same as east of Eden. We see some improvement from uh, Adam's exile east of Eden. On the other hand, though, uh, the promised land does not either equal Eden as described in Genesis 2. So we're caught between Eden and exile, which then begs the question, and this is the question that we're going to answer today, what is the promised land all about? What was God doing giving his people the promised land? The answer is that the promised land is a picture. It's a signpost. It's, it's a stop along the way of full restoration from exile. What God is saying is, I want to give you a down payment. I want to show you what the end of Adam's exile will be like. He's not saying this is it. This is not your final destination. In fact, the author of Hebrews, which I'm not going to get into, but I'll just flag it for you, in Hebrews 4 talks about this. The promised land fell short of delivering the rest Joshua didn't bring God's people into God's rest. So it was incomplete. But it is a picture. It's a sign that points to something greater. It's a shadow of some greater reality. It's a typology. If you remember from last year, we talked about typology. A typology is like a blueprint. You see in a blueprint a two-dimensional rendering of a three-dimensional reality. The promised land is a two-dimensional rendering of a three-dimensional reality. And the three-dimensional reality is what we find at the end of the Bible the new Jerusalem, the new creation, the holy city. So, so the, the promised land is God's way of saying, I'm taking you somewhere. Uh, Adam's exile is not the end. For those of you with, with faith to receive my grace, I'm going to give you something like the promised land, only it's going to be better. Better? Better than a land flowing with milk and honey? Better than the valley of Eskel? Better than figs and pomegranates? Oh, yes, better. These are but a foretaste of the good things that I'm going to give you. I just want to read to you another passage from Hebrews. Listen as I read. Remember, to whom did God first give the promise of this land? This land flowing with milk and honey. To Abraham. 
listen to what Abraham understood God to be promising him. This is in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. That's the promised land. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, did Abraham think that this was it? No, somehow Abraham understood that the land that God had promised him and his descendants was but a down payment, a, a mere shadow, a blueprint of something greater. What Abraham understood was this land represented a reversal of Adam's exile. And for that he was glad. We see that in verse 10. For Abraham was looking forward, not to this land, but to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, what Abraham somehow understood is that the land promised to him, which we see God giving to his descendants at the end of the Torah, is but a picture of the holy city that we read about last week in Revelation 21 and 22. So God is saying, by giving you this land, I promise to give you a new creation. It's sort of like what we do when we promise somebody that we want to marry them. When, it, when I wanted to marry Ange, I, I gave her a ring. And for, for the months that we were engaged, we weren't married. But the ring on her finger was a symbol promising her a consummation of that engagement. So is the promised land. A sort of engagement ring to God's people. I'm going to give you the ring. I'm going to give you the land. But the time is coming when the reversal of Adam's exile won't be partial. It will be total. As I mentioned earlier, Babylon in biblical theology, or as we're reading the Bible, is a picture of hell. We can't really worry about how did I come to that conclusion. Just trust me. But the promised land Likewise is a picture of the new creation. Now, if, if you gain nothing else out of this morning's sermon, being able to identify whenever you come across the promised land as a promise or a reality in the Bible, what you're seeing in picture form is the destination of all who are saved by grace through faith of the new creation, then that will be enough. What, what I hope us to be able to gain is, is proper lenses through which we can read the Bible. The promised land is a picture of the new creation. Thus, in the Torah, what God is doing for us is He is giving us the big picture of the gospel. You see, at one time, for a thousand years... The Torah was, by and large, the whole Bible. From Moses until the time of David, it was the whole Bible. David added some Psalms, and Solomon added some Proverbs, and then later on in history, the prophets added some prophetic books. And then it's not until uh, 500 B.C. 
that we get Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings and Ezra and Nehemiah. And then only after that do we get First and Second Chronicles. And, and so God was expecting his people to get, get the sense of the gospel, get a sense of who he was as a gracious God and how he was going to save them uh, by the pages and the promises of the Torah itself. And so in the Torah, what we see is the fullness of God's gospel. And it's no surprise then that the Torah ends very much the same way that the Bible ends. With people poised on the edge of the promised land, waiting to go in. The Torah tells us the story of the gospel. Adam was exiled because of sin. But Adam's exile will be reversed not because Adam's descendants are any better than he was. In his fall, he corrupted us all. But because of God's grace. So anyone that ever tries to tell you that the Old Testament is a book about law, or that the Torah is all about law, and I know there's a lot of law in the Torah. That's where we get books like Leviticus. That's where we get uh, books like Deuteronomy. This is where we get the giving of the Ten Commandments and instructions for the tabernacle. That's all in the Torah. But anyone who says that the, the Torah or the Old Testament is all about law hasn't understood the book. Because at the beginning, Adam was exiled and he condemned all of his descendants to exile and final exile in hell. But at the end of the Torah, we're not in hell. We're going into the promised land. Not because we deserve it, but because that's the gospel. How did God take Adam's descendants from east of Eden to the promised land? Well, central to the Torah, and this is what we're going to look at next week, is the sacrifice of a lamb. And in the middle of the Torah, God takes a people enslaved to sin he says, I'm going to bust you out of this place. I'm taking you out of bondage. I'm taking you out of sin. And I'm going to give you the land that I promised your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the gospel. We're all in bondage to sin. We all should be uh, expecting the ultimate end of Adam's exile, permanent exile. But because in the middle of time, in the middle of the Bible, there's the blood of a lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're freed from our bondage, slavery to sin. And the exile is turned upside down. And we don't, we don't continue in Adam's exile. We are no longer driven from the land. But now, like Israel in the wilderness... We even now are poised at the edge of a new creation. A land that God has promised for us. And this land, unlike that little postage stamp of real estate in the Middle East, is better than Eden. The blood of a lamb takes us out of slavery, out of exile, and takes us to a land that God has promised. How's God going to do this? When will we cross into this land? 
I want to read for you, just as I read the last two chapters of the Bible last week, and that was our hope, I want to read for you the last chapter of the Torah. This chapter ought to give us the same hope that we derive from Revelation 21 and 22. Oh God, help us to understand and to see just how good this is. The gospel from your Torah. Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land Gilead, as far as Dan and Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees, as far as Zohar. Now that doesn't mean much to us, but what God has just shown to Moses, and I don't know how he showed it, if he, Moses just saw for a distance or if God like, actually took him over and, and showed it to him, I don't know. But what Moses gets to see is is land that symbolizes the end of exile. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Fruitful land. The fulfillment of his promises. Verse 4. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Why did Moses not get to go into the land? I think there's two reasons. One, well, there's three. There's the one that is most obvious. He he acted in anger against the people, but that's that's why he was literally found guilty. But there's two greater points that God wants to make. He wants to reassure or to teach his people that this land that I'm giving you, it's good land. But it's not the ultimate destination because we see in Moses' example the the exile of Adam is still active. Moses died and, and all of the people would die generation after generation after generation. So for God to truly reverse Adam's exile, there's gotta be something more. There's gotta be something better. That's what Jesus comes to give us. And there's a third reason. When you think of Moses, what do you think of? You think of the law. The law doesn't take anyone anywhere. Not by the law or by the keeping of the law will anyone go into the land that God has promised, whether it's this land in the Middle East or it's the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem at the end of the age. Even the lawgiver, the one through whom God gave Israel the law, Moses himself, was not good enough. He was a transgressor. And so he died. 
in the one through whom God gave the law, God also made the profound point that even that one through whom the glory of God bounced off his face, even Moses was a lawbreaker. It's not by keeping the law that you go into the land. It's purely by grace. That's what we see in the last paragraph of the Torah. Verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did, in the sight of Israel. So ends the Torah. Two things, and then we're done. Joshua leads God's people into the promised land. What is the name of our Savior? Joshua. In Hebrew, the name of Jesus is Joshua. In Greek, it's uh, Jesus. So Jesus is a translation of his Greek name, But his Hebrew name, Jesus, in Hebrew, is Joshua. That's not a coincidence. At the end of the Torah, we are poised on the edge of the promised land waiting for Joshua, Jesus, to take God's people into the land that he had promised. And so we sit in the wilderness of this age, poised at the edge of a new creation, waiting for who? Joshua, Jesus, to come and to take us into the land that God has promised us. What land is that? The land described for us in Revelation 21 and 22. Oh, God has given us the gospel. Secondly, the Torah ends by saying, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses. John, at the beginning of his gospel, begs to differ. He's not saying that this is wrong. He's just saying now there's one who is greater. The law came through Moses. That's true. But grace and truth has come through a greater prophet with greater power, Jesus, the Christ. I pray that we would have eyes to see the big picture of what God has done and is doing in Scripture and in history. Adam was exiled, driven out of the land. But God is taking us back to a better place. And the day will come when Adam's exile will finally and fully be over forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us not to be casual with this glorious truth. I pray that it would touch us deeply. Give us confidence in the gospel and that we would fall down to worship the one who is greater than Moses, Joshua, our Christ, our King, and our God.
In his name we pray. Amen.